0: This is Brainstem with your host, neuroscientist Dr. Hilary Marusak, production by Amanpreet and Manmeet Bogle. All right. Hello. Welcome to our episode on psychedelics. I have two amazing therapists, researchers here. I'm so excited to talk to you both. Can you both start by just briefly introducing yourselves?
1: Sure. I'll start us off. So I'm Sarah Reed, a licensed marriage and family therapist, also CEO of Minds Eye Health Solutions, which is a mental health and tech service company that is dedicated to changing how we talk about and treat mental illness. And I am super grateful um, to be here. I hold a lot of different um, hats in my daytime, like lover, like daughter, um, like plant lover, um, and human. And I am very grateful to be here with you all today and hope to be able to um, share some um, some meaningful information and um, share a little bit about the work that it is that I do.
2: Awesome. Um, Hi, everybody. My name is Jamila, uh, Jamila George. I'm actually an advanced uh, clinical psychology PhD student. Um, I reign from the great city of Detroit, Michigan, which I like to acknowledge as the ancestral home of the Ojibwe and Ottawa and Potawatomi tribes. Um, I am a researcher, clinician, therapist, um, daughter, friend, singer, dancer, activist, all of the things, Um, and so happy to be here today. Really excited about this opportunity.
0: Both of you are way more creative than myself, <laughs> Ask my students. Um, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to get into this topic. It seems like we're hearing about psychedelic, the psychedelic renaissance, psychedelics for treatment of various mental disorders, anxiety, depression, PTSD. So can you just start by telling us how we got to this point?
1: Mm-hmm. So what feels important to me about the origin stories of medicine work is to um, is to honor the um, indigenous folks that we've drawn um, practices from, that we've drawn wisdom from, because the reality is the psychedelic medicine field would not exist if it weren't for um, the wisdom and the practices of um, indigenous folks. And um, Jamila, Actually, wrote, um, co-wrote a wonderful paper on um, this topic, which I'm sure she can um, speak to, um, speak more to around um, its origins.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the plug, sis. Um, So, yeah, so Sarah's referring to um, a paper that I co-wrote with a couple colleagues. Um, It's titled The Psychedelic Renaissance and the Limitations of a White Dominant Medical Framework. And it's a call for indigenous and ethnic minority inclusion. And it's highlighting exactly what Sarah just mentioned. It's this idea that a lot of times we tend to um, credit uh, scholars, chemists, researchers in the United States, starting in the mid 1950s to kind of the the, the earliest um, uh, kind of credits for folks like Dr. Hoffman who get credit for their contributions um, synthesizing um, kind of LSD, for example. Um, and the reality is that we have to, if we want to be accurate in our historical timeline of these, of these medicines, we have to go back thousands of years um, right. and, and really give credit and give homage to people, the peoples um, from indigenous lands and communities who, who m- and many times sacrificed their lives to test out uh, these different plants for different ways of healing th- their bodies or healing their minds um, in community or religious settings um, to kind of try to connect with the divine, right? So there's a lot of rich history that I think tends to get kind of whitewashed and and minimized and marginalized from this from this narrative. So it's really important that we that we take those things into consideration and not um exclude the folks for whom if it weren't for their lives their sacrifice their practice their wisdom we would not be here
1: yes and their protection of the plant medicines too um just because if um Indigenous folks haven't um, didn't protect the plants. Then the um, westerners wouldn't be able to study the plants um, to study medicine work in the ways that they are able to do today. So with starting with um, indigenous wisdom, indigenous practices, and um, kind of bringing it to um, bringing it to now. So psychedelics is kind of a catch-all phrase for these um, mind alternate, altering substances or conscious expanding substances that really allows folks to, um, or or it may allow folks to really engage with their emotional wounds in a different way, traumatic wounds in a different way. And so what's being studied right now, um, you might have classic psychedelics, the classical psychedelics, like, um, like mushrooms, still seven mushrooms, uh LSD, um, DMT, um, but you also have the other psychedelics um like MDMA, um, ketamine um, is even considered a psychedelic in, mm-hmm. um, in context of this conversation around medicine work. So there are all kinds of research studies that are happening now around the safety and the efficacy of um, these substances. And we um, just happen to be two therapists who have had opportunities to, um, to work with them.
0: Yeah, that was a and- wonderful,
2: oh, sorry, go ahead, please. No, sorry, I was just gonna add one more thing that, that I think is important to, to kind of tag on to what Sarah is mentioning, that we kind of understand these kind of, you know, hallucinogenic drugs as um, being able to alter states of consciousness, right? And kind of um, kind of channeling the serotonin to a receptor agonism, for example, um, for kind of enhanced sensory perception, um, thought processes, energy levels, um, spiritual experiences, for some folks, just for fun. Um, the reality is, is that these medicines come, a lot of them come from a sacred context mm-hmm. uh, in which uh, it's important to understand before we really are utilizing them in such a way. And that modern chemistry has really, um, in a lot of ways, been able to kind of duplicate some of these substances or even kind of manipulate the chemical structures to really kind of you know mimic this synthetic form. But the reality is, many of these hallucinogens have origins in plants. Um, so it's it's just so important to pay homage to the land, to the people, and to the to the plants that are even informing the the, the synergetic um, kind of experiences that come from psychedelics.
0: Absolutely, and um, Sarah, if you're um, watching on the video, actually has a plant to her right, so <laughs> it's a perfect a perfect addition. Um, I love that historical context, and thank you both so much for bringing that because I think there's so much um, interest in this right now. And finally, we've been able to apply you know, medical research um, to address this area. But um, y- like you pointed out, people have been using these things for millennia. Um, and, you know, we need to, to understand that that is the reality of it, and that is part of um, the history of this. So thank you so much for doing that. And I want to be clear, what you guys are doing is not just asking people to go out and do mushrooms. You're doing it in the context of a very well-defined um, clinical treatment uh, program, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to walk us through what that actually looks like from your perspective and what from the patient's perspective as well.
1: Yes. So thank you so much for um, talking about just the um, importance of the container or the setting of which um, which really holds this medicine work, because The reality is as psychedelics go mainstream, there are folks who are getting exposed to psychedelics through different media, whether it's documentaries, whether it's things on um, social media platforms um, and the like. And folks are curious about experimenting with them Um, in the comfort of their home. And, you know, sometimes there might even be folks who are interested in receiving the treatment in a medicalized context. They go to treatment or go to a therapist that offers, say, for example, ketamine therapy, and they are hopeful about the treatment. But then when they hear that price, Mm -hmm. um, they're like, yes, so um, (laughs) I, you know, want this treatment, but the way that my bank account is set up, I don't think (laughs) that, you know, we can um, pursue this. So what are my options? And I think that this is a really um, important question for therapists to consider, for clinicians to consider, for the psychedelic medicine field at large to consider, because we are in this moment right now, especially with COVID, Hmm. Um, there's been... um, some self-reports that have come out where folks are using more, um, using more substance recreationally. And Mm -hmm. to me, it's really important to think about um, how do we reduce the harms against mind, body, spirit as psychedelics go mainstream. So I just wanted to (laughs) name that point uh, before talking about the medical eye setting just to, Um, to let folks know that there are online resources available for integration therapy. So if folks are having their experiences outside of a medicalized context, but need and need to integrate their experiences is help available that you do not have to go through this alone um, period. So um, with that, uh, let me go back to um, psychedelic therapy and what it is. Um, So, Psychedelics are used as an adjunct to um, to psychotherapy to help people resolve um, emotional wounds of the past, um, experience past traumatic experiences, resolve things like anxiety, depression, um, and in the context, I'll speak um, for MDMA therapy, for example, um, a participant. Um, who enrolls in a study is um, gonna sit with two therapists and completes a series of both drug and non-drug treatment sessions um, where they are really tackling this material in a very new way, in a very new container. As Mila or Jamila was saying earlier, it's not just about the effects of the drug that really reprodu- or that can catalyze this change, it's the synergy between. The drug, the therapist, the participants, mm-hmm. um, spirit, the contain, the environment that a person in—it's—it's mm-hmm. the it's synergy of all of these pieces that work together for the healing, and to me, that is what psychedelic therapy is.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> 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 I mean, I know I'm something. <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, you absolutely, you hit it right on the head, set in setting, um, kind of, I think one thing I do want to highlight is that um, some people tend to think uh, that like psychedelic assisted therapy, they take out the assisted therapy part and they focus on the psychedelic. And it's like, yes, you're going to take this, um, this, this plant-based medicine um, or this, this psychoactive drug. um, But you're also going to endure hours, eight hours. If you're doing MDMA, for example, you're going to be in an eight hour session with two therapists whereby you have to um, uh, really confront uh, a lot of the, the, the fear and the trauma and the shame and the guilt and the anxiety and all of the kind of negative emotional responses that a person may have had. You're kind of really put in a position where you have to confront it. And the, the, the the challenge is making sure that you're in a space in which you feel safe enough to explore those things and Mm -hmm. i'm sure we'll talk more about this later but the importance of having kind of culturally competent uh therapists and providers who can make you feel safe enough to really go there is so important so the therapy piece is just as important as the the drug it's not some magical peel that's going to wipe all your pain away no what happens is you take this medicine and you have to do the work right you have to be Mm -hmm. prepared to come and and process and work through um these difficult emotions and experiences and then try to make sense of what that how kind of how you experience that on your trip and then afterwards even in um kind of the follow-up sessions, you're kind of trying to integrate those experiences. Okay, so now that I've confronted this pain, maybe I feel a little bit better about it. And now how do I move forward with my life now that I feel a sense of liberation in this way? Now this is new. How do I move forward, right? So it's a lot of emotional processing work that participants have to do. And it's really important for your for your own healing to take place.
0: Yeah. And they can't forget the therapy part of it. It, it sounds like a lot of hard work, yeah. and it is. Therapy is a lot of hard work, and yes. um, you are you both there as therapists are really there to to guide and to help and to integrate and make them feel safe, so that that hard work can actually happen. Mm-hmm. The drug is just um, an adjunct or an add-on to accelerate that process. Did I get that yes. right? Absolutely. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. And you hinted at it when you talked about the cultural competence of the therapist. um, But I know you both all do, um, you both do wonderful work as well on perceptions of psychedelics in diverse communities. So can you speak more about that work?
2: Oh, sure. So that's such a huge question because I, (laughs) I honestly feel that all the work that I do is really kind of coming from. Uh, a kind of a a particular lens, Uh, I guess kind of summarize it, we would call it a Jedi lens. You might be hearing that term more in the field, Uh, stands for kind of justice, equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, So kind of having this kind of Jedi lens and this kind of social activism that really informs the work that I do. Uh, I'm constantly focusing on equity for everybody, right? I'm thinking about um, kind of how to use critical theory to really affect change. Uh, not just in an organizational level, but at a systematic level. Um, I'm thinking about how to create opportunities for access, right, Um, broadly in research participation. We see tons and tons of studies show uh, that people of color are minimally represented in In research in general, uh, but especially in psychedelics specifically, Mm -hmm. um, not to mention that therapists of color are minimally represented in the field of psychedelic science. Um, So. So for me, it's important to kind of increase opportunities to access um, this kind of material, this kind of. Um, this 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 gym that we have, honestly, I really believe in the potential of psychedelics to to transform and really radicalize and, and evolutionize the way we understand kind of psychiatry and psychology and mental health treatment broadly. So I feel privileged as someone who is educated, has access to these resources and to this information. And it's now my job to make sure that I'm disseminating this information um, as directly and as succinctly and as clearly as possible so that people know that it exists, so that they know that opportunities exist, that that they have the potential to be healed and to be free from the pain and the trauma that they've suffered or the addiction or the anxiety or the you name it that they've suffered with for so long. Um, so, so that kind of is what moves me. That's what informs the research that I do, the, the kind of um, statistical analysis that I do, the, the way I design my studies, how I write my protocol, how I approach the Institutional Review Board to try and get a study <laughs> passed, right? Is how can I make this accessible to people who are otherwise marginalized and would otherwise not have access to this, right? And so with that also comes, the importance of education, right? Um, And kind of making sure that I am um, educated and up to date. Because a lot of people think like, oh, just because you're a person of color, you just inherently have this knowledge about how to be, you know, an advocate for (laughs) marginalized Mm -hmm. groups, so that you automatically know how to be culturally competent. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. We have to work too we have to read too we have to write and process too right we have to be educated as well so for me i I take that personally so that um, i'm doing the work i'm then modeling what that work process can look like for potential research um, participants for potential collaborators so just really emphasizing the importance of of education in that way um, so that i can um so that i can answer the tough questions that, that comes when you work with communities of color mm-hmm. uh, who typically don't feel safe to ask honest questions, right? Who are, who are kind of coming from a context in which there's a long legacy of of medical mistrust and pain and harm and discrimination. Yeah. Right. And then and then I'm asking you to come do some, do some you know, psychedelics in a clinical drug trial. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Right. So I have to (laughs) I have to be knowledgeable and aware of the the breadth of what might come up so that I can inform them Mm -hmm. and help them to feel safe with me to do this work. So, yeah, to sum it up, I would just say just be really being driven by um, this kind of social justice lens is really at the crux of everything that I do and everything that I hope to continue to do moving forward.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And to um, to jump in the conversation here just around culturally responsible care, it feels important to define um, what I mean um, when I say culturally responsible care. And to me, When I think about culturally responsible care, it's a practice. So it's not something that you can get a certificate in and be deemed culturally competent. (laughs) It's something that is ongoing, um, that happens not just with the information that you receive here, but also the work that you do here. And so it's taken into consideration a person's race gender ability income education geography and mm-hmm. how all of these social factors contribute to the way that symptoms present or yeah. symptoms manifest in um, particular groups as well as um, how does um, what are the clinical outcomes for a person um, that fits this particular demographic because if we're not taking all of these um, social factor to consideration, there's a direct impact on um, clinical outcomes. So, Mm -hmm. for example, what does this mean? How do we translate that that knowing into practice? So, research shows that um, folks from BIPOC communities um, are more likely to express um, psychological symptoms, Um, as physical symptoms, Mm -hmm. and for one reason is there's less of a distinction between mind-body, and another reason is that there's less of a stigma associated um, with complaining of physical symptoms as there is if complaining of mental symptoms. So Mm -hmm. I feel like as clinicians, as therapists, as researchers, how do we um, take this knowledge and and complete assessments or complete screening that's really culturally competent, taken into um, factors um, factors like that. Mm-hmm. And to me, culturally, culturally responsible care also extends beyond a racialized lens. So to illustrate what I mean by that, in the psychedelic medicine field, you've got folks, for example, who haven't engaged in medicine work at all, who are psychedelic naive, um, and who just hear about the work and are wanting to engage in treatment. And as um, therapists, as clinicians, as researchers, it's important for us to um, to think about how does the container um, shift or how is it different um in the preparatory period for someone who hasn't had experience with psychedelics versus someone who maybe identifies as a psychonaut and has had prior experience I love um, that term
0: by the way psychonaut
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and um even with um oh what was I gonna say uh, folks in the I threw you off, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's all good, it's it's gonna come back, it's gonna come back, Um, cycle. Oh yes, so preparatory period. Um, um, Oh yes, and like Mila was saying um, earlier just around education, the importance of education um, throughout um, the process that education in that preparatory period might look different for folks of color, for folks who haven't had prior psychedelic experiences, just so they can fully know what they're consenting to, um, what type of experience Mm -hmm. um, they could have. And it also feels important to mention, and this will be hopefully one of the last things I say about, uh, which is around um, just the journey of the experience. Because Mm -hmm. there are, I feel like a lot of what's talked about in the Mainstream about psychedelic therapy is like you've got to go back to like these really hard places, these difficult places in your life, Mm. the challenges that have happened to you, these harms that have happened to you. And while that might be true, what is also true is there can be joy as part Mm. of the experience, there can be peace as part of the experience, there can be relaxation as Mm. part of the experience. And um that feels important to love exactly as part of the experience that um all um these kind of like by these polarizing parts of like the challenging experiences but also the expansive experiences they do coexist and can coexist within this therapy
0: so cool i'm learning so much (laughs) (laughs) i i learned jedi i learned psychonaut um i Selfishly, this is why I love having a podcast because I get to bring awesome people like you both in and learn about cool things that I've never thought about before, like the work you are doing. There's so much about psychedelics, as we mentioned in the beginning, but I don't think a lot of folks have thought about the things that you are bringing up. And I think this is such an important message. Um, I did want to ask you, because I know our audience is going to be wondering about this, how can they find out more? How can they get involved in something like this? What resources are available if people want to learn more about this? (laughs) (laughs) You're like,
1: you go, you go. (laughs) the... Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is a legal science-based treatment dependent on the clinic and the location that is available to folks now. And there are all kinds of ketamine therapy clinics that are across um, the country gonna do a shameless plug for my company minds eye health solutions and we've got um, um or we're starting ketamine therapy here in kentucky so for folks who um, are interested in learning more about that service um, they can visit us at www.minds letter i health, um, dot com, and we can um, can um continue the conversation about ketamine therapy there um, for folks who are in in enrolling in clinical research trials, Um, clinicaltrials.gov is really going to be the main place where folks can go and type Mm -hmm. in um, like MDMA therapy, psilocybin therapy to see... Um, what studies are available to them. Um, It also can include inclusion and exclusion criteria. So you already know um, what's going on. Um, And for folks who are um, therapists, clinicians, um, researchers who are wanting to get involved in the field, um, particularly with MDMA therapy, they can um, go to Um, maps.org slash research, um, where um, there um, will be a few studies that are listed, MDMA therapy being one of the um, research studies where um, they can learn more about how to become a therapist and um, find out more information about the research work.
2: Those are all incredible resources. Um, Mm -hmm. One, two things I'll name, or maybe three um that i'll name is that sarah talked about uh kind of MDMA st- the mdma research that's going on i have to mention um we are preparing for expanded access uh in the field of psychedelic science so so maps sponsored clinical trials are entering a phase in which more people will have uh, the ability to enroll uh so the the clinic that i'm a part of is in Tolland, connecticut is called behavioral wellness um there will be um hopefully we'll be kicking off and I don't want to say exactly when, but top of 2022, uh, if you if you want to find us online and be connected with us for folks who have treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress symptoms specifically, um, that kind of study will be available to you. Uh, you might be eligible. But for other folks who might just want to learn more, um, I wanted to mention the Ancestors Project, uh, which does really incredible work around kind of the importance of uh, honoring our ancestors and those who came before us and and kind of uh, kind of tilling the land and tilling the work and uh, building the legacy that kind of thing in this work and beyond um, there's also the psychedelic integration collective which is just a great a great resource for kind of understanding kind of what's happening in the field oh and that reminds me of shakruna i would be remiss if i didn't mention uh shakruna c-h-a-c-r-u-n-a shakruna is an incredible uh, hub for all things psychedelic um kind of covering a number of topics related to psychedelics like um sexual abuse and trauma uh religion and spirituality um the list goes on and on so shakruna is awesome because they're always um discussions going on um web events going on articles being published um, there's opportunities to get involved in kind of some of the social activism pieces of it as well if you're interested in, in kind of policy changes as well and then sorry i guess i had a lot more to say than i thought <laughs> and then <laughs> um, i want to turn your attention to a place called one village healing healing mm-hmm. um, they're housed in in New Haven but uh, they have some really incredible resources online kind of just really existing at this intersection of like arts and creativity healing and justice so kind of getting back to my my points about the importance of justice and advocacy and action um, they do incredible work around um, kind of understanding how to heal in a creative context but also uh, kind of how to express whatever you might be feeling in a kind of activism, kind of grassroots way. So um, those are some great resources that you can check out. Of course, you can um, always reach out to me uh, and Sarah, I'm sure, directly if, if you have questions. We'd be happy to hear from you and to support you. And uh, That was wonderful. And I will um,
0: list as many resources as I can in the bio to the podcast, and I'll get that list from you both. I want to thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and for all of the wonderful work that you're doing. Um, Keep up the good work, and I'm so excited to see um, what you both do next. Hi Jessica, very nice to meet you finally. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, Do you want to just introduce yourself briefly for the tape?
3: Sure, I'm happy to. Um, So I'm Jessica Maples-Keller. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine. Um, I'm the Associate Director of Research at the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program, um, which is a program that provides Uh, treatment for invisible wounds of war for post 9-11 veterans um, that's led by Dr. Barbara Rothbaum and Dr. Sheila Rausch. I'm also a core investigator with the Grady Trauma Project, which is a group of investigators that research civilian trauma um, based out of Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Awesome. And I've toured Grady. It's a very interesting location. So yeah. very glad to have you and, and get into some of your research. I know you do a lot of different types of research, but today we're talking about psychedelics, and we just heard from Sarah and Jamila about some of the history um, of psychedelics and how we got here. So I was thinking we could just start with um, you introducing what are the major types of psychedelics, um, what are how do they work?
3: Awesome, we'll do. And glad you were able to talk to Sarah and Jamila; they're so fantastic.
0: Um, So as far as, um,
3: so psychedelics kind of generally describe this category of drugs or medicines that are associated with what we call non-ordinary states of consciousness. So this can mean different things um, and people's subjective experience of them vary um, even within the same um, medicine, but often it can involve things like changes in perception, mood and cognition. Um, It can alter people's sense of time their sense of themselves can involve um, things like experiencing hallucinations. Um, Some people report experiencing like religious or spiritual or mystical experiences um, with some of these. So as far as um, kind of classification, I wanna first acknowledge, there's a lot of different views out there on how to classify these drugs. So there's not really like a really agreed upon taxonomy but I'll give a brief overview about some of the terms that are often used. So um, when we talk about psychedelics, there's the classic psychedelics, um, things like LSD, psilocybin, DMT, or mescaline, and these are um, serotonin-2A receptor agonists. And so this is, when people say psychedelics, this is most usually the type of um, medicines that they're referring to. And then you also have a group called, um, M- some people call it empathogens. So these are drugs like MDMA that are mixed Serotonin reuptake inhibitors and releasers. Um, so there's some disagreement. Some people consi- consider MDMA psychedelics, some people don't. Um, and then you have atypical psychedel- psychedelics, things like ibogaine, um, which affect multiple uh, neurotransmitter systems. But so my research is mostly focused on MDMA and psilocybin, um, but there are many other kind of medicines that are currently being looked at for different uses within um, mental health treatment.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And I think people will be surprised to hear that scientists often disagree about things, like how to classify <laughs> exactly. different medications. Exactly. So. A lot
3: of disagreement out there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thanks for laying that out, though. And um, I think the, the serotonin system is most familiar to people. Um, so yeah. they'll, they'll connect on that with like antidepressants. But I think it's it's good to like lay that groundwork and, and um, show that these all, for the most part, work on that system.
2: Um, yeah, definitely. So before
0: we get into like the, the clinical implications, I wanted to talk about the legal status, which mm-hmm. is something we can't ignore without, um, mm-hmm. you know, in having this conversation. And this really gets into some of the, the treatment implications, we'll, which we'll get to soon. So can you discuss what's happening on the legal front with these, um, these drugs and how does that impact research? Definitely. Um, so I can go
3: into like a little bit of the history and current context. But I want to make sure it's clear I'm I'm um, focused on kind of in the U.S. and within medical research because mm-hmm. um, as I'm guessing you you both talked about earlier um, these medicines have been used um, historically and currently across many different cultures for cultural ceremonies, religious ceremonies, spiritual ceremonies, or for healing, um, and often that gets kind of underacknowledged by the Western research community. So there's definitely a long history there, but as far as within the U.S. and medical research, um, what we saw historically, starting in about the 1950s to the 1980s, there was this big kind of wave of psychedelic medical research and a lot of enthusiasm around combining psychedelics with therapy, um, given their um, potential therapeutic healing power. Um, And at this time, they were not controlled substances. So what this meant was there was no regulations um, in their use. So there was a lot of um, interesting things done, um, some research done that was not very well controlled, um, even some unethical research occurred. So there's a lot of different examples of things that um, happened around this time frame. But one example is there was a CIA secret project called MK Ultra, where Mm -hmm. um, people were administered really high doses of LSD. Um, sometimes without their knowledge or consent. Um, so there was lots of different types of research going on at this time. In the 60s, um, there was also this kind of rise in recreational use of the medicines. Um, and There was also this kind of shift in public opinion on these um, medicines. So around this time, psychedelics drugs were designated a schedule one substance. Um, so generally what that means is the government determined um, designated that they have no medical value. So LSD and psilocybin received this de- designation in 1970 um, and MDMA received it in 1985. So this led to most um, government research kind of ending um, into, their therapeutic val- into their therapeutic value. Um, so then starting in the 90s, you see a handful of scientists in, in the U.S. and Europe reinitiated some human, some, um, human studies with psychedelics. Um, and more recently, there's been a really big increase. So, um, you know, you see things like the New York times calling it the psychedelic Renaissance and a lot Mm of, um, different, uh, news coverage or TV shows talking about them. Um, and a big part of that was the maps, the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic study has been really focused on, um, MDMA specifically in combination with PTSD therapy. Um, And so they've been doing this work um, for a while. And in 2017, there was this really exciting um, change where um, based on MAPS um, clinical trials um, results showing the promise of MDMA assisted therapy for helping with PTSD, the -hmm. FDA gave MDMA um, breakthrough therapy designation. So suggesting strong promise for not only its safety, but kind of efficacy for helping with PTSD symptoms. So this was a really kind of big moment in the field and that really put, you know, expedited their phase three trials um, and puts it on a potential path for um, FDA approval which could even possibly happen in the next two years. So there's a lot of, we're in the midst of a lot of big changes. Um, Currently there's a lot more research going on, but of course it is still very regulated um, Mm -hmm. given that it still is um, a schedule one substance. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of changes over the next couple of years in the field and how research as well as, um, therapeutic practice with these medicines look.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. And I think it's, um, I am a little biased, but a little, a a really exciting time to be in psychiatry and especially in your Mm -hmm. field, because there's so much as you're saying movement in this area after being so dormant for so long. And it's kind of interesting to look at like cannabis as one example where, you know, it's on a similar trajectory. It's a little bit further along where public opinion mm-hmm. has really changed and Absolutely. we're really beginning to explore the medical um, applications of, of those substances. But I think like the take-home message is it's still schedule, lo- schedule one, so it's federally illegal, but it is being, you know, looked at in terms of all these, these medical indications. So hold tight and, and wait for those Absolutely. rigorous yes. trials hold to tight. be done.
3: <laughs> and I totally agree. It's such an exciting time in research. There's a quote I really like because I definitely um, do believe there's like a lot of therapeutic potential here, but it Mm -hmm. also is such an exciting time for research when you think about like, these are medicines that can tell us a lot kind of even more broadly about like what is consciousness? What is the mind? What is the self? So I think um, there's a quote by Stan Grav that um, he said something like psychedelics used responsibly and with uh, caution would be for psychiatry, what the microscope is to biology um, or telescope for astronomies. And I just always love that quote because it really is an exciting way to be able to look at, you know,
0: how we can help people with these difficulties and like what's what's really going on with our experience. Yeah, how world. do we understand our, the brain and how it functions at a basic mm-hmm. level, too? That's a really good point. Yeah, yep. there's there's so much potential here, but I think people need to hold tight and wait for the really rigorous trials to be done so we can actually understand and, and really direct mm-hmm. folks. Um, mm-hmm. So what types of things, you mentioned PTSD is one area of active investigation. Um, what other areas are being explored in terms of clinical applications for psychedelics?
3: Yeah, great question. There's a lot and there's more <laughs> kind of almost every day it feels like. Um, so there's definitely a reason this is being called the psychedelic renaissance. So um, some areas include things like drug and alcohol addiction, um, depression, particularly treatment-resistant depression, um, terminal illness, um, end-of-life anxiety, um, obsessive-compulsive disorder. With MDMA, there's also some work going on around couples therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of different areas. It's always expanding. Um, I would say, to the most currently robust areas of like clinical trial research would be psilocybin focused on um, mostly treatment resistant depression and MDMA for um, PTSD. But there's a lot of different applications kind of growing all the time. Um, And then there's also um, a lot of great research coming out that isn't as focused on the mental treatment, but really looking at um, the subjective effects. And like you said, things like brain function. So like what's going on when people are taking these uh, medicines actually neurobiologically and how Mm -hmm. does that associate with these effects they experience?
0: And that's so exciting. How about things like ketamine for depression? I know that's that's not one of the ones that you mentioned, but also like microdosing.
3: Yeah, so um, there's a lot going on with ketamine. So some people think of ketamine as a psychedelic, some don't. Um, ketamine does have um, FDA approval. So there's actually a lot of clinics now. There's not only a lot of research going on with ketamine, but it's also um, you know integrated into clinical practice in a lot of areas and accessible to a lot of people for treatment. Um, as far as microdosing, um, it's interesting. Uh, so there's there's a good bit of research on um, like what are the effects of microdosing and recreational users and kind of like descriptive research, um, I wanted to mention because I come across this a lot of um, of a misconception that a lot of the main clinical trials with psychedelics are looking at full doses. Um, so some people assume that, like the trials are looking at more micro doses, and <laughs> um, so most of the the main ones are are looking at you know a full active dose of things like MDMA or psilocybin. But there is some interesting work going on looking at, um, given that there is a um, good bit of interest recreationally in things like microdosing, looking at when people engage in those um, sorts of habits, what sort of things do they experience, as well as kind of digging into. What are the effects versus the placebo effects of doing things like microdosing psychedelics? Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, yeah, and and you mean microdosing just not to get that full psychedelic effect? So anything that's a smaller dose, although I think the the doses we're talking about are very small, anyways, for like a full psychedelic experience, right?
3: Yeah, right, and that's the tricky thing too. Is like, what is a microdose? Like, there's not an agreed upon scientific um, definition, and there definitely have been. within the main clinical trials, like dose comparison studies to look at, because you know often when we're doing these sorts of trials, we're wanting to see what's the lowest dose you can take, but still get mm. the maximal effect mm. in order to minimize things like potential side effect or safety concerns. Um, but yeah, a lot of the um, main trials and the main effects have been found for what we would call like active doses of the, the medicines, again, in combination with therapy. Gotcha,
0: okay, so um, mm-hmm. much more we need to learn. Can you? Mm-hmm, yes, a lot to learn. <laughs> can you go into what like psychedelic assisted therapy looks like? Let's say for for your work with MDMA and PTSD, like give us give us a picture of what like a clinical trial would look like. Yeah, um,
3: so you know there are obviously differences across different trials or protocols, um, but many use a, a, a similar general format. In the stages of what that looks like is, um, you know, first there's always that kind of evaluation and assessment phase where people are assessed in order to determine, are you an appropriate candidate for psychedelic assisted therapy? Um, and the eligibility is, is typically pretty stringent. Um, so making sure that um, both medically and psychologically that the person would be a good candidate. So it often involves, um, you know, like a full medical exam, medical workup, um, things like, in EKG for MDMA, um, a full psychiatric assessment and historical assessment. Um, often these trials involve tapering of SSRI medications. So um, as we talked about a little bit ago, these serotonergic systems are really important to the effects of these medicines. And um, some of the MAPS data suggests that exposures to, recent exposure to um, antidepressants that target Reuptake transporters may reduce the effectiveness of MDMA-assisted therapy, so um, often there's a tapering period for people who are on SSRI medications. Hmm. Um, And then for those that are eligible and a good fit for the treatment, um, the first step of the actual treatment involves what we call preparation. So these are multiple therapy sessions with your main therapist um, that involve... um, you know, providing guidance on what to expect during the, the dosing session, developing rapport and a good relationship with the therapist, practicing some skills um, in case, um, you know, some coping strategies are needed during the dosing day and really helping the person prepare um, emotionally for their psychedelic experience. So then um, the, the psychedelic day itself, um, whether that's MD or, May or, or psilocybin, Um, You know, it's typically a full day, given that the effects do last for several hours. So usually at least six to eight hours. Um, And for most protocols, you're in the room with two therapists, you're laying in a bed. Um, A lot of times there's a music playlist playing um, and eye shades are provided. So most protocols encourage people to spend um, a good bit of that day inward, um, kind of really tuning into their experience and what comes up for them. Mm but both the therapists are available um, the entire day to kind of help support um, if, and just kind of be there for the person, um, however that's needed. So, um, and then after the actual dosing day in um, different protocols are different. Sometimes there's one, sometimes there's one to two to three of those dosing days, but after that, that phase of treatment There is what we call integration, Um, so this is usually multiple therapy sessions after the dosing session where um, The participant processes their experience and processes insights talks about how to apply them to their life with the support of their therapist. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a general overview about what it typically looks like. Yeah,
0: that's wonderful. And and most of these trials, is there like a placebo group? So they would come in and not know that they're not given the active drug and even the therapist wouldn't know. Is that right?
3: Yeah. So um, there's it's done different ways, but often there's a placebo Um so, for some trials, there's been like crossover. So, where you have two sessions and one day's an MDMA day, one day's a placebo day, but the therapist and the participant don't know which is which. Um, obviously, uh, blinding and placebos are a little tricky when you have these medicines that have such um, significant subjective effects. Right. But actually, the data suggests people aren't 100% accurate in predicting oh, that's what interesting. they got. Um, yeah. And then um, some trials. So, for instance, um, one of the main large psilocybin trials going on, it's a dose comparison, but one of the three doses is, you know, typically not associated with active effects. Mm -hmm. So, you don't know exactly what dose you got, um, and neither does the therapist, but there is, you know, there's a lot of individual level variability about how much subjective effects mm-hmm. people feel with different doses, so it's often um, not clear what people
0: receive. Yeah, that's really interesting. So then you guys at the on the back end as researchers, you can test whether the effects are above placebo or above different doses, so kind of finding what the best dose is to maximize whatever outcome you're measuring. Exactly. So yeah, hopefully maximizing the therapeutic
3: benefit while minif- minimizing the side effects experienced awesome. um, by the participants.
0: Very cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing mm-hmm. all the results. Do you have any like initial findings you can share about like positive effects or any side effects um, experienced in these patients? Um, so as far as our work, um,
3: the trial we just completed was in healthy adults. So it wasn't a therapeutic trial. Um, and then I'm the therapist on the compass psilocybin trial. So those results, um, the trial has wrapped up and we're waiting on the results. So I'm just as eager <laughs> to, to hear as everyone else how those, exactly how those results look, but it should be soon that those results
0: come Very out. cool. Is there anything you can share about like um, what patients have reported to you or just like what you've observed, um, you know, in the patients who have done it? Um, you know, it's a really interesting experience as
3: a therapist, (laughs) as you can imagine. Yeah, people definitely have really different um, experiences. Um, But yeah, I definitely do see a lot of healing potential in these medicines. I think again, we have a. um, I'm glad there's a lot of rigorous, high quality research going on right now, so that we can make sure it's done safely and we can figure out. What's really going on, but I think there's, you know, in my experience with uh, actually doing the clinical work, I think there's so much potential here. So I'm really thrilled to see what happens over the next few years as we learn more and more. And I think importantly, learn about like, what are the parts that are really important to people actually getting better? You know, there's a lot going on neurobiologically, there's a lot going on therapeutically. So hopefully over time, we can more and more um, hone in on like, what are the pieces that really matter? And how can we most effectively get that to as many people as Absolutely.
0: possible? And you're thinking right now that the goal would be to just, you know, do one of these sessions, like, what is the frequency? Is it kind of like one and done? Or are we thinking repeated?
3: Um, That's a great question. And <laughs> I think, again, I like to be determined. Um, okay. I think it would be you know, just feasibility-wise, it would be wonderful if one session within a the therapeutic protocol would be sufficient, but I think that's um, up in the air if that's going to be enough. But I will say one thing that I find so exciting about the data so far is in the MAPS data, um, they, there hasn't been, you know, a lot of long-term follow-up given that this research is pretty new. So MAPS did, has a long-term follow-up study of participants who did the MDMA therapy for PTSD, and um, over long-term follow-up, not only were gains on average maintained, but they even increased. Oh, wow. So it's something like that that makes me so excited yeah. um, as a psychologist to think that like, you know, these aren't just like one-off experiences that people enjoy, but then it kind of fades, fizzles mm-hmm. off that, at least for a good bit of people, that this really, um, you know, sustains over time and can be really transformative for people. Um, but I think it's a good question. And I think it'll be interesting um, as different models are explored to see, you know, not only how many dosing sessions do people need, but also how much preparation and integration do people need? And maybe is there individual level differences on like some people might need more maybe you don't need an extra dosing session, but maybe you need some extra integration sessions mm-hmm. or follow-up to kind of help maintain your gains. Um, but I think, yeah, there's, again, a lot
0: to, a lot left Absolutely. to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot to be hopeful about too, because I think it's so different from what we're seeing mm-hmm. in other types of treatments for mental disorders, where you need to take a medication basically for the rest of your life or, you know, therapy yes. uh, um, is great and it works, but sometimes you need maintenance therapy and you need to stick with it. So, What are you, I guess, most excited about on this front in terms of the research or the actual potential of the treatment?
3: Yeah, I think I think you just really hit the nail on the head with that. I think it's really, um, you know, we see a lot of people like some people are hesitant about psychedelics. And I think it's interesting when you if you kind of take an objective lens comparing psychedelics with current psychiatric medication Mm -hmm. practice, like you're saying, Often it involves people taking the medication or multiple medications every day for years on end. Um, There are significant side effect profiles with medications that are prescribed really regularly. So yeah, just to echo what you already said, I think it's just so amazing to see that um, a lot of trials are showing um, good effects with these one or two times administration. Um, So I think a really... um, something I'm really excited to see is how things are, how we're able to expand access to these treatments over time, both legally um, and, you know, how, how we're able to roll them out and get them mm-hmm. to people. Um, and it's a pretty significant time commitment often. So how we help people um, actually integrate that into their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's yeah a really exciting time to figure those yeah, things out. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And um, we do have a couple extra minutes. We like flew through all the the questions I had prepared. So if it's okay with you, I want to ask you one more question. <laughs> You're like, what is she going (laughs) to ask? I wanted to, this is obviously like a brain podcast. So I wanted to know um, if you had any ideas about like how this, how these affect the brain, you know, how this could be working at a therapeutic level and feel free to take that in whatever direction you want. Yeah. So, um, In our work, we have been looking
3: at um, MDMA um, and its impact on fear extinction. Um, So I think that's an area that could be really exciting to look at both um, the psychophysiology and eventually looking at neurobiologically. So there's um, been some really cool research by Young and colleagues looking at how MDMA impacts fear extinction and fear extinction retention in rodent models. So that was kind of the basis of our um, healthy adult study was looking at if that um, finding also occurs in healthy adults as kind of a foundation to looking at it in the context of the type of treatment that um, we do, which is prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD. Um, So I think, uh, you know, looking at um, the kind of known neurobiological processes of fear extinction could be a really cool way to look at Um, you know, how brain changes might predict or uh, be associated with some of these treatment mechanisms. Um, Yeah, so that's the kind of main area that I'm, but I'm also interested in generally, um, you know, as I said, the research that some other people are doing looking at, um, you know, brain changes with administration of these medicines and what pieces seem to be really important to both the therapeutic and just the subjective Mm -hmm. effects. So, you know, people experience really different subjective effects on these medicines. So trying to figure out what's going on and what's going on with some of the variability. Yeah. And that area
0: sounds just wide open. We have very little understanding of how these compounds Mm -hmm. actually work. On both of those fronts. So I think
2: mm-hmm. there's a lot
0: to do there. And I'm glad you mm-hmm. mentioned fear extinction. And I think we had Tanya Ivanovich on for the PTSD episode. So I think mm-hmm. folks will remember that. But at least for PTSD, that makes a lot of sense to focus on that as, as kind of a process that we know is impaired in PTSD. So can psychedelics actually mm-hmm. get at that? Really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're really excited to, to keep following up on this line work. <laughs> I'm excited too. I'm going to have to get you back on in a couple of years to see how things have changed. It sounds like it's going to be, <laughs> yeah,
3: probably totally be a lot, different.
0: <laughs> a lot to catch up Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, so I guess to end, what do you recommend for folks who are interested in learning more about this? Um, or if someone who, who might have PTSD or wants to try something like this?
3: Yeah. Um, great question. So, um, as I've said, MAPS has um, a lot of ongoing trials, so you can check out their website and see if you might be a fit or if there's um, a study in your area. One thing I also always like to give a plug-in is that um, especially, I think there's so much excitement around psychedelic-assisted therapy, which is wonderful, um, but the reality is it's not available most places, and there's pretty strict inclusion um, criteria. So for, you know, some random medical reason, someone might not be eligible. So I always like to just give a plug to that. um, There is really great evidence based PTSD therapy Mm -hmm. that exists now that, you know, doesn't have those inclusions, that's more widely accessible, um, and is available in most places. So things like prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, so looking for cognitive behavioral therapies for PTSD, um, for anyone looking for some help, Um, we know that those are very effective for, um, treating PTSD, um, and are much more widely Mm -hmm. available. So I like to always emphasize that for, um, any post 9-11 veterans out there, I'll put a plug in for the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program. We provide prolonged exposure, uh, free of therapy, um, and other, um, psychotherapies. And then as far as just learning more about this generally, um, I think, you know, there's a lot of great readings out there. Um, so digging into the scientific literature, um, And, you know, it's these have been used across many different Mm -hmm. cultures. So reading more broadly, um, as well as the MAPS website has a really great um, psychedelic bibliography um, that people can check out and some great videos on psychedelics, as well as a lot of um, really cool work on policy and advocacy in this area, because I think that's also so important right now as things are shifting so much legally. They've been doing a lot of great work. Those are
0: wonderful. And I'll um, include some of those links in the bio to this podcast um, I also want to plug in the Michael Pollan book. I, th- I thought he did a wonderful job in covering mm-hmm. this area, and mm-hmm. he actually experimented with some himself. So I think that was, that's a really mm-hmm. good read for anyone who's interested. And um, you're exactly right about therapy being widely available, and that, is, that does have a really great evidence base. We know it works. Um, I always recommend people mm-hmm. go to psychologytoday.com. They have a really great website where you can actually search for a therapist who would specialize in PTSD or cognitive processing or prolonged exposure and and actually find someone in your area who takes your insurance and does that. So we can link yes, to that. Yes,
3: definitely. Great recommendation. Yes. And having those search terms can be helpful. I think um, the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies also has a similar kind of search directory and, uh Anxiety and Depression Association of America, or just Two other ones where um, there'd be likely to be a lot of providers with expertise in great. this area. So yeah, there's great PTSD therapy options out there without psychedelics too. So I wanna encourage people to while we're waiting to for check that. That's out.
0: wonderful. And thank you so much, Jessica. I really appreciate you being here. This was so fascinating. Yeah, thank you so much for having thank me. You, this was thank fun. You, um, thank you. I want to thank Wayne Radio for having us and um, recording my audio. So thanks so much. That wraps up another episode of the brainstem podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and share this with friends and family and be sure to follow us on social media at Podcast.